Good morning, good day, evening, all of it. Welcome to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi. I am back, you're back, and this week does not disappoint. Show 19 features New York's own race caller, John Imbriau and Bob Edwards from E5 Racing. As always, don't forget to subscribe to Talk Racing to Me with Naomi to never miss an episode, as well as the In The Money podcast feed with their daily content. Pete, JK, Matt, Spencer, and of course, our latest addition from Across the Pond in Nick Luck, who all really give you a unique insight in the global horse racing industry. Now, for my first guest, John and I go over his lengthy career with the New York Racing Association, all the different roles he's held, what his first Belmont call felt like, and how everything has been going thus far. He recalls tidbits of Saratoga history, as well as what makes each New York track different to call. Truly an interview you'd like to hear. My next wonderful guest is Bob Edwards from E5 Racing. They started out with their first yearlings, buying first yearlings in 2015. And in 2016, they won their first Breeders' Cup race with New Money Honey. Really an incredible success story. And they've been going from strength to strength ever since. Now, the majority of racing fans will be well familiar with their bright lime green colors, including the big purple E on the body and the purple sleeves with the green dots. Now, E5 Thoroughbreds consist of Bob and Chris Edwards and their children, Cassidy, Riley and Delaney. And as I mentioned, they have campaigned uh, a Breeders' Cup winner, but actually multiple Breeders' Cup winners, New Money Honey, Good Magic and Rushing Fall, and have truly been an outstanding force promoting the industry and their horses via their social media outlets, newsletter and app. And we also chat about Valid Point coming up in the Grade 1 Four Star Dave on Saturday at the Spa and Rushing Fall reopposing Sister Charlie in Sunday's Diana Stakes. Really phenomenal weekend of top class action coming up at Saratoga. But also don't miss out on the latter section of the interview as he's giving out horses to follow for all the listeners. I'm throwing it to myself and Johnny I, sitting in our production truck at Saratoga Racecourse, a place he knows so, so well. Johnny, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And we're six weeks in already and mm. the Saratoga meet uh, how has it been going for you so far first ever Saratoga meet for you full-time in the booth well it was um, something out of uh, out of this world um, you know knowing I was going to be you know calling up here and uh, we had the sh- you know the relatively short meet at Belmont but you know uh, we had the Belmont stakes and the Met Mile and things like that so um so and then we come up here and you know we've got 40 days of racing on the on the on the schedule and you know it doesn't really matter what day it is I shouldn't say that Travers Day Whitney Day Alabama I mean they're all, they're all special but every day is special at Saratoga and I still kind of pinch myself when I walk into the booth knowing who has been there before me and to know how lucky I am to be able to you know, call the races on a daily basis uh, here at really the greatest race place in the world for, for my money anyway. Unfortunately, there aren't any fans. Did you imagine that your first meet was going to look like this? Well, I hope I wasn't the jinx, you know. To, <laughs> um, and the one plus is that I knew I couldn't get booed, you know, without any fans out there. But, um, you know, we had Belmont with no fans, so we were kind of prepared for it, you know, a little bit, including, you know, the work the work that you do, Naomi. So when we came here, yeah, of course you want the fans. But that being said, and I think this applies to, to your job too, You've got to, You've got to do what you got to do. Once the you put the headsets on and you put the mic on, you're really just concentrating on calling the race and doing the best job that you that you can with it. Yes, you would have liked to have heard the roar of the crowd when "Tis the Law" came down the stretch and the Travers. But I've said this to several people: fans or no fans, if you can't get pumped up as the announcer when you're calling races at Saratoga then you probably should find find another gig because it's you know it's it's just a pleasure to be able to do it here and i i get excited every every day uh, because you never know what's going to happen you know you get bang bang finishes you get top horses all the time you have you know something to look forward to every day two year olds who you never 
you don't know anything about them until they until they run and then you get some special performance so it's special every day here oh, it definitely isn't i'm going to go back to some of those bigger races that you just mentioned sort of a little bit more depth but i'd love to first start with the beginning of the year that you was handed the microphone from larry comas for a full-time gig and you know you make your start and then all of a sudden a pandemic hit so what was that like for you well just from an announcing standpoint you know you don't want to go whatever it turned out to be at about two and a half months maybe a little more that's a long time to not you know to not have work and to not you know do your thing on a daily basis so so that it took it always takes me a little while no matter what the scenario and it took me a while again uh, to really find, you know, you find your tempo, you find your rhythm, you, you know, you get going again. So that first week at Belmont, you know, for me anyway, I found it, you know, a little choppy and a little up and down. Um, and, you know, and then you get going and then here comes the Belmont and, you know, you hope you're ready. You hope you're ready for that. So missing the time. Um, you know, definitely affected me that first week and maybe e even longer. But now we've been on a regular run basically since, you know, since the start of Belmont and then coming up here. Do you practice at home just to sort of keep your mojo throughout those months or? No, not really. I, th I don't think it's something that you can kind of, you know, can kind of prep for. Um, and even though I haven't been the lead announcer, you know, I have been calling races for a long time. So you, you, because you can't duplicate you know, the race and the live action in front of you. Yes, you could go back and look at races. And, and I did do that a little bit for Saratoga, to be honest with you, only because there's a lot of, you know, quirky little scenarios here where horses go behind trees. And, you know, so I wanted to get the idea of that, of you know, when they disappear, when they come out again. So I did, I did look at a little of that before, you know, before we came up here. But a gap of time of not calling, there's not really much you can do about it. You just can't wait to get back and get back in the booth. That's something I, I, I don't know much about race calling. I'm not a race caller myself, but you mentioned they go behind the trains and then they appear again. How do you deal with that? And you said you prepared a little bit for that. What goes through your mind at that point? Well, a couple of the cases which I, I didn't handle the way I should have early in the meet, and they're primarily uh, turf races uh, going two turns. And when they go around the clubhouse turn and head for the backstretch, you are going to lose them behind trees. So a couple of times I hadn't gone through the entire field by the time they <laughs> they hit those trees. Now they're gone until they appear again. So now I try, you know, I, I concentrate on making sure I get through the field at least once. Then if they dis they only disappear for, you know, it seems longer, but they only disappear for a second or a second and a half. So as long as you've got them all mentioned already and you know where they are, then when they appear again, you know, you can just you can just pick up on them. And sometimes things happen. Sometimes it's the same lead horse. They might switch if it's tight before they hit the trees. But I, I think I've got my, my, my timing and my logistics down a little bit better with that. Well, the idiosyncrasies of Saratoga, mm -hmm. right? Are there any aqueduct in Belmont that we need to be aware of? There's nothing. Aqueduct is clearly the easiest track to call at. The track is a mile and an eighth. Um, there's no obstructions. Belmont, you run into the issue where they are just very, very far away. It's a mile and a half track. Most of the races, 99% of them, um, are going to start on the backstretch. Here it's, here it's great because you get the mile, the mile and a 16th turf races, mile and an eighth on the dirt. They're right in front of you. So that's, you know, that's a big aid, you know, for us. So, uh, but Belmont, it's the, it's the largeness of the uh, of the track and uh, that that's what you got to contend with and here like you know you've got little um, little things uh, there's there's a pole up in the booth that you kind of have to step behind if for the dirt races going a mile and an eighth but but not that big a deal but it, what is really great about here though because you're much lower here at Saratoga than you are at Belmont or Aqueduct much higher there now with that in mind the perspective when they come into the stretch they're kind of more coming at you than having them, you know, kind of diagonally at Belmont and Aqueduct. But once they get real close, you almost can feel, feel like you can reach out and just touch them. They're that, they're that close. That's another reason why it makes it so exciting to call here, because you're just right in the middle of the action. Is one easier than the other? You say one, the one sort of coming close towards you and then being more diagonal. Is, is, is it easier? Um, you, you want a little bit more perspective and a little bit more height. You know, if I had, if I had to, if I was going to build it again, I would build it so that 
the um, it would be in between the height of Saratoga and the other two. The other two may be a little bit too high. This is a little low, but we're not building anything anytime soon in the announcers booth. So they are what they are. Oh, historic Saratoga, such a beautiful track. I'm not suggesting any changes. <laughs> right, exactly. Also, if there's anyone that knows these tracks, it's you. You've been with the New York Racing Association for 40 years, so I highly doubt there'll be anyone that knows the tracks more than you. They're doing a phenomenal job thus far. Getting back to the 152nd running of the Belmont Stakes, which was your debut calling a triple crown race. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, Tis the Law, very impressive winner there. And for you, you know, starting that call and then finishing it, was that in some way a, a special moment, in a way, a culmination of all these 40 years? Because I, I know you from when I started at Naira. Right. You made me feel welcome. Mm -hmm. You were uh, in oh, TV you. production as director of TV. You've done so many different things. Do you feel like every little bit of experience that you've gained like made up to that wonderful call in a way? That, that was clearly a hurdle I wanted to get over, you know, the Belmont Stakes. Um, I was, I remember being very nervous at the start of the day. I, I got to a point where I just wanted to get into it, you know, start the day and get going. And it was an, you know, it was an early start on, on Belmont Day. Then, and then I was, you know, I was in pretty good uh, shape once I got the first race out of the way and then we had I think nine other nine other races before before the Belmont but then the butterflies clearly came in you know leading up to the Belmont I do a lot of pacing around the <laughs> which is not that big but I walk around a lot um, I take deep breaths make sure I'm breathing right uh, the one I had two concerns on Belmont day and I, I I was in a good position I mean I knew the horses everybody knew the horses I mean you, you, that you can study and take care of but I had two concerns one was that the Belmont this year did not start in front of the stands. So now you've got them coming out of the chute of a mile and an eighth. You're just concerned that you might miss something when they come out of the gate. Fortunately, it was a clean break, especially for Tis Law. The other thing that you worry about at Belmont, which doesn't come into play here at Saratoga at all and very, very little at Aqueduct, is the sun. The sun really beats down at the horses when they come to the top of the stretch at around 5.30, 6, 6.30. However, somebody was looking after me, and this is the truth. We had mostly sunny skies, and about five minutes before the Belmont Stakes, here comes for an announcer, a beautiful thing is cloud cover. And cloud cover came in about five minutes before the Belmont, and I didn't have to deal with the sun for the Belmont Stakes this year. So I was happy about that. But then, you know, he was so terrific in the Belmont. I actually think he was even better in the Travers. So he was he's a terrific horse, and I'll, I'll be rooting for him on Derby Day. Well, that was going to be my question. Do you think he could be the next? He, he could be very, very special. I just think... When horses do things effortlessly, which he really does, we really haven't seen him make like a, that dash of, you know, because, you know, he's there with the other horses. And the next thing you know, he's not. But it doesn't look like he's really being asked like he's. So I don't even know if we've seen the best of Tis the Law. Now, a lot can happen in the, in the Derby. We know that. Big fields. You don't know about the weather. You don't know about the track. You know, so a, a lot can happen. But what we've seen so far he is clearly, you know, the best three-year-old. Does it make it easier as an announcer that you have such a wonderful, you know, strong performance or such a hyped-up horse going into that race and then he delivers on that performance? You like, I mean, you prepare different things that you might say, whether it be looking at him or looking at, you know, somebody else who might, you know, pull an upset. So, yeah, it's, it's it also, to be, to be blunt... When he won, when he wins so decisively, you don't have to worry about scrambling at the end of the race. So you can kind of say, you know, what what you had planned, and he won decisively in both the Belmont and the Travers. So from that standpoint, it did make it a little bit easier. But I was very happy for all the connections, you know, with the owners and Sacatoga and Barkley and Manny, and um, you know, be rooting for all of them on Derby Day. And so circling back to what what is, what did it mean to you? calling that first ever Belmont say did it did you you know get a bit like wow this is what I've always wanted to do or this is you know such a combination of everything did you get emotional at all or I think I think I was so wrapped up in the race that I, I couldn't get emotional you obviously think about it I think I thought about it more after the fact 
going into the race and, and that week, you know, you're just preparing and hoping that everything, you know, goes well, that everybody gets a clean trip, you know, nothing goes on. Obviously, during the race, uh, the weather was, was, you know, was ideal. Uh, but after the fact, you know, I, I did kind of think, you know, this is this is a special moment for me, you know, be calling the Belmont Stakes in a year that is, you know, is all is all over the place. Um, and it was the first leg of the Triple Crown, which was different than, you know, than than any other year. The distance was different. Um, but in the end, all that anybody is going to remember is Tis the Law and what he did. And that's and that's the way it should be. Well, and of course, the wonderful way that you've translated the experience to the viewers that would possibly normally be attending the mm. Belmont States, but this year didn't get the chance. Did that add a little bit of extra weight? Um, no, like I said, you know, I was so engrossed in just trying to, you know, get through it and get it and get it right. Um, yes, and Belmont is different than here. The one. Uh, another difference because we talked about it. Now, when there's 80,000 people there, clearly you can hear the fans. But on a regular basis, because there's no open windows at Belmont or Aqueduct, here we can have open, there's a door, there's, you can, and, and you're more in the middle of the crowd. So it's really Saratoga where the crowd, you can really hear them get into it on a race by race basis, no, uh, no less any, you know, any big stakes race. So, um, I'll have to see if, I, if I'm here next year. I'll have to see how the Belmont is with a crowd there. It'll be, well, be something to look forward yeah, to exactly for all right. of us. Some sense of normality <laughs> next year, hopefully. Right. Yes, hopefully. Uh, some of your predecessors there, you know, the likes of Tom Durkin, Marshall Cassidy, uh, Dave Johnson. You've, you know, there's been some wonderful announcements. Did you listen back to some of their calls? Uh, is that something that you would do to gain experience or experience, excuse me, inspiration, possibly? Inspiration, yes. Um, I've, I'm familiar with a lot of the calls of, of Fred Capicella and then Dave Johnson and then Chick Anderson and then Marshall and then Tom and then Larry. But one thing that Tom Durkin told me, and it has stayed with me probably for 25 years, he said, don't listen to me. And obviously he knew I had to listen to him, whatever job I was doing to, to do the job right and to get, get rid of whatever, whatever it might have been. But what he was saying was, create your own style. Don't piggyback on what I might say. You can do your own thing. And he's 100% right. And I, listen, I've, I've got, sometimes I've got his, his calls and his phrases in my mind. And I actually try not to say them or use them because, you know, you want to create your own independent voice independent style and, and that's what that's what I've tried to do it's just to take nothing away from all of those great great broadcasters but if you think about it and go back and listen they had their own styles they had their own phrases uh, you know everybody was different there all their voices are different and you know hopefully I'm a little bit different than them too what would you have quite well you would have uh, presumably had a professional relationship with Tom Durkin being the backup caller since 1970? No, no, no. It was later no, than that. Tom, Tom yeah. started in uh, Tom started in 90, and I kind of became his unofficial official backup in around 95. So I worked with him yeah. for his, the last... He stayed here till 2014. So I was with him as a backup primarily for 20 years. So that was a long time. Incredible. Yes. So you must have definitely exchanged some notes, like you just mentioned, the tips he gave you. Yes, exactly right. You know... F in in my opinion, he is the he's the greatest race caller that that we've ever had and that that I've ever heard. I will say this, and I've, I've said this before too. Just from a pure voice, Dave Johnson, I think, had the the absolute perfect voice for a track announcer. And he was also a guy who did a lot of radio commercials and TV commercials. So there was advertising people that thought he had a terrific, terrific voice too. But there, there is something to be said, you know, for all of them. And, you know, it's a, it's a great honor to, to, to follow all of them now. And your predecessor, Larry Colmus, uh, what kind of relationship do you have? did you have with him? Uh, do, would you discuss, you know, race calls or races together? Uh, we discussed it a little bit. I mean, Larry was very, very good at uh, at um, making sure he had pronunciations correct. And that is a very important, important item. You never want to say an owner's horse, the name, 
incorrectly. Now, sometimes they're tough to figure out only because you do research. You might go to the dictionary. You might go to the, the to the to a website. But sometimes they're just they're playing around. They're just tricky and stuff like that. But Larry had Larry was very good at tracking down pronunciations. We actually would talk about that, you know, um, you know, on a, on, a, on a regular basis because I might want to tell at what I was doing at the time was working with some of the talent. So he might give me the pronunciation, and then I would give it, I would give it to the talent. So and I and I keep that in mind on a daily basis. If there's, I mean, I've reached out actually. To the talent because I got I've gotten stuck on a couple of horses up here and then let's say Acacia had been in Florida and she knew the horse or whatever the case might be and so we, we kind of all work together. Uh, the, the correct pronunciation is very important of, for these horses. I feel like it's tricky on a daily basis. I think um, there was a horse. Was it? I think it was a couple of days ago. It was a Bill Mott Richetta. And everyone okay. was saying Ricketta. And I'm, I can't remember what you I called. said Ricchetta. You but, said Ricchetta. But that was one I looked up. And, you know, that's like in a, an Italian pronunciation. But I, the horse wasn't, you know, Italian bred. I mean, I yeah. think it might have been. It was a foreign bred. But I can't remember where. It's the Saratoga Oaks. It was a jump monster. Yes, exactly. Came over from Europe. Yeah, now, I'm just hoping that I'm right. And I would always, I would love if a trainer or an owner or whatever would contact somebody if we're doing it wrong. We want to get it right. Now, the best set of case scenario was to find out what it is before the horse was run, not for it to run once, then get it wrong, and then have to correct it. But like like I said, it's you know you you, you just want to be accurate with that. Yeah, that was her stateside debut. Would you hence reach out to people like the owners? Maybe perhaps is that what Larry would do, or how does that work? You know, it's kind of hard to get in touch with people like Peter Brandt. I mean, you know, so so I don't have his number, but I, I, so sometimes though. Again, what the like Maggie or Acacia will do if they happen to be in the paddock and we're stuck on a horse, they will go if the owner or trainer is there and ask for the pronunciation. But a lot of times the trainer, I mean, he's not paying a lot of attention to the pronunciation of a horse. He's got other things on his or her mind. So, uh, but we do try to track it down. Yeah. And going back to, I feel like I'm asking you about a lot of first because obviously your first mm-hmm. year full time. Uh, that first race at Saratoga, when you say, and they're off at Saratoga, what did that feel like? Yeah, I mean, it started with Tom, where he would get the crowd involved, where he would say, okay, now on, I forget how he did it, uh, on the count of whatever, or when the first horse leaves, everybody says, you know, and they're off at Saratoga. That I wasn't able to do, you know, this year, because there there were no fans to get involved. But... It was, they were, it was significant for me both at Belmont and here. Belmont, the first race there back, which was on June the 3rd, was the first sporting event in New York since the pandemic. So, and I, we all knew it was going to get a lot of coverage because we had come back before anybody else had. So that, you know, there was some tension there, you know, with that for me. And I was just hoping that everybody came out fine. Nothing happened at the start, which, which it didn't. Um, and then kind of the same thing here at Saratoga. They did cart a mile in an eighth race, which is right in front, which is, you know, which is also nice. But, you know, just to start the meet, you know, that's, Seems like a while ago. <laughs> this has gone so fast these six weeks, but you know that's uh, that 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 was that was exciting without the fans. I can't imagine what it would be like if the fans were here. You can't wait for next year. Uh, didn't Governor Cuomo get involved with that first race call at Belmont? Or he was giving a little message beforehand. I don't know if that was anything. Relation I to believe him. yes, he did, and I believe that. I don't know if they we just use that on the show on if they use it on the live show or if it was if it was piped in. I knew I knew that he was going to say something and then you know. But again, you're just kind of concentrating, you know, with you know with the horses and the start and and you know they were on the backstretch. So I'm looking out there to make sure I've you know I've got them all. So, but again, the most important thing is just nice clean starts, good clean finishes, and hopefully a good clean race call. Yeah, always the most important aspect of the race is that they all come back safe and sound. No question. First and foremost, and then, you know, the, the brilliance of the story you're telling. And going, um, let's discuss your Traverse call. Actually, there's been a fair few people reflecting on the Traverse call saying it was quite a strong call. It was actually a terrific call. Mm-hmm. Someone even called it. Looking back on it, do you listen back to your calls and, and think, you know, I'm happy with this? I very rarely listen back. Most of the time I will listen back if I know I messed up, because I want to go back and see why or when or whatever the case might be. I would say that, and this I would think is for all, for everybody who's an, an announcer now or has been an announcer, 
it's very rare that the announcer doesn't know whether he thought it was a good call or a or not so good call. The announcer knows as well as the listener. And sometimes it's happened where you just, you know, you just flip a name or something. You're not even conscious of it. That does happen occasionally. But for the most part, it's like it's like producing a segment. It's like doing a live show. The people who are involved, they know whether or not they did what they wanted to do there or they didn't. And it's really the same thing with the announcer. We kind of know right away um, whether or not we did did it the way we wanted to, for the most part, um, or if there was a if there was a slip up. So um, I'm not much to listen to, to to my own to my own voice again. Has there ever been a cheeky slip up? Oh well, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes, uh, and that's that's something I do have in common because every announcer has had their has had their slip up or uh, a race call you want to forget or or you know like that. You just hope that that's you know that's on the minimum side. And and the uh, we've had some muddy race calls. I'll put it to you that way. And we just hope we have the clean race calls is what is what predominates. I was hoping you could give me some examples, but I won't make. No, I, I don't want to go. Ahead. That I don't want to re- recall. I won't listen to any of the okay ones, but I don't want to recall the bad ones. I can completely understand. And um, the reason I said 1979 before is because I was looking up when you started with the New York Racing Association, and that was the year that you started in the press office because you won a announcers. Yes, I was working for a company at the time called Sports Phone, and uh, people who. Um, play sports, horses, whatever. Um, before they're not not horses. We didn't do racing results. We did do um, game in game updates. And what it was was be, it was 1979. There was no internet. There was no ESPN. So one of the few ways that uh, people who might wager on on a game or two, the one of the few ways that they could get updates and then final results would be to call this phone number nine seven six one three one three. And I did the but with a bunch of other guys, um, did the updates with that. And then in the summer of, or the spring of 79, my uncle saw an ad in the Daily News, and he knew I had a little bit of an interest in horse racing, um, that the track was having an announcer's contest, and whoever won the contest didn't get to announce, but got a job in the press office. So I entered it, I sent it a tape, uh, you know, that I had done just from actually from my brother's living room was just a recreation and they called three people out to call a, a real live race now that up until that point that was the most nervous I had ever been regarding anything in my life it was July 25th 1979 Marshall Cassidy was there with me uh, called the race got called I think sometime in the fall I don't remember that uh, I was going to get the job and I started November 5th 1979 that was my first day working at the track in the press office so was it via your family that, in a way, you were introduced in racing, or was it already your own interest? No, it wasn't. My brothers and my uncles really had more interest in horse racing, you know, than I did. What got me completely hooked, if you want to call it that, was affirmed the the affirmed Alley Dar rivalry in 1978. Everybody got involved with that and had you know liked one horse over the other. I happen to be a firm fan with Steve Cawthon, uh, 18 years old, I think he was at the time. A beautiful chestnut horse, affirmed was, and um, he won the Triple Crown. Obviously, I was at the Belmont Stakes that year. Was at the Belmont Stakes in in actually was at the Belmont Stakes in '77 when Seattle Slew won. Then was back again in '78, and um, but that was he really got me more uh, in tune and uh, more to liking horse racing than than anybody else had up until that point. It was the horse that did it for me. And that was affirmed. Wow, and. What was the racing scene like back then? Because I said it before, you've worked with New York Race Association 40 years. I mean, there must have been so many different changes as well as cultural. Like, what can you remember how, you know, what was the vibe like back then? A couple of things I remember from Saratoga. Um, the first time, well, no, not the first time, but in 1978 here at Saratoga, when Affirmed ran against Ali Dar and the Travers, a firm finish first was disqualified. Ali Doe was put up. But the point is that that year and several other years, they allowed fans in the infield. So I was in the infield for that affirmed Ali Doe Travers. You used to be able to 
cross, they've set up a time frame. There was a three minute window, or whatever, where you could go back and forth. Actually, they put boards across the main track. You were allowed to walk over um, and then, you know, go back whenever. But I was in the infield for that. The other thing that I think some people would find surprising, you know, younger people like yourself, unless you've, uh, you, you know, read books or looked it up, was that they used to call it up here saddling under the trees where there would be basically a tree in the paddock area um, with a number on it, number three, and the fans could literally go, Naomi, I would say they were no more than 12 to 15 feet away. No, nothing in between them, the fans, and the horse and the trainer and getting saddled. That was saddling under the trees at Saratoga. And, and as far as I know, I'm not saying that this is a guarantee, but as far as I know, Nothing ever happened. I never read a story where some horse, you know, they also were still able to go into the saddling area and and saddle under there if they thought they had a horse that was difficult. But that's how close you could get at Saratoga to watch a trainer uh, saddle a horse. It was how, n- how did they regulate that? They funneled people into the stand and you know little. No, cows. people were just able to. It was it was kind of like the backyard area, and that's where they did it. And they would take the horse after he or she got saddled, then walk him over to the uh, to the walking ring in the in the paddock, and and that was that. But you could get that close, and they did that. That was for a bunch of years when I was coming up here, both as a fan and then a, and then as a worker. That that they would do that, and that was something unique but saddling under the trees was a special scenario here at saratoga i hadn't heard of that before mm-hmm. that is very unique indeed. yes very unique it doesn't happen anymore obviously well that this paddock was <laughs> nowhere safety yeah, this pad <laughs> this paddock was nowhere near as big then as it is now this was tremendously built out i mean the, the paddock area used to be much smaller than it is now, because half the horses weren't even saddled in there. They were saddled outside under the trees, you know, with the public not far away. Wow, what a time. I have to try and find some pictures. There might that. be some, uh, your friend Mitch might have, might know of some video somewhere going back to the 70s or, or Frank Langton or somebody like that going back to the back to the 70s, you know, in the 80s, some Saratoga film or something like that. But that, oh, pictures, oh, you're right. It could be some pictures somewhere, but... But that, that I did witness, yes. Yeah. What about, you were mentioning people were able to get into the infield. When did they cease doing that? I don't remember. It had to be sometime in the, uh, in the 80s, I guess, where they, where they stopped doing that. But at the time, again, Saratoga has expanded just from the areas. They've done a great job in providing more areas. If they didn't allow people in the infield, they, ne- they had 50,000 people here that day. They would not have been able to handle 50,000 people for Affirmed and Alidar on Travers Day. So, uh, on Travers Day. Um, but I'm not exactly sure when they, when they stopped people going into the infield. Wow, that was quite the time back then. It was different. For sure. And for those that don't know the different roles that you've had at Naira, would you be able to give like a brief overview of like the different things that you don't have different, you've worked in different departments. You truly know the organization inside out. Well, this is, this is fairly boring, but I can't, <laughs> but I can tell you this as far as if I can remember this, I actually did this, this I did do one day as far as my titles were concerned. Okay. I have been a coordinator, a manager, an assistant, assistant announcer, an announcer, a on-air talent, a um, a producer. That I, I don't know if I said that. Um, some array. I I don't know. I don't think it was an an analyst at one time, but I did do the the handicapping, the pre-race prattles. Um, you know that everybody does if there's if there's no live shows. Andy and Maggie do. Um, so there's been six, seven, or eight you know, different titles that I've been lucky enough to have, but you know, it's what keeps going. You know, I've been able to, and it's been good for me because I've been able to experience different departments who do different things and meet different people. And I think that has all, that's really has helped me, you know, over the years. I remember the first job that I talked about in the press office. And I actually was talking about this with Andy Serling the other day. Uh, We worked on the very first media guide for Naira. And that was in, 1979 into 1980. With Andy, you did that together. No, no, no. Andy wasn't here then. No, I was just talking to him about how you get, you know, learn and get experience and stuff like that. And I remember because again, this is 1979, 1980. 
There are no computers. There's no way you can go online and find out anything. But I was kind of, one of my assignments was to find out as many little tidbits as I could about the Belmont Stakes. How did I find that out? I found that out by going through actual newspaper clippings and reading stuff and reading stuff that had been saved and stuff was saved back then and organized pretty well, uh, finding out about the, the white carnations and the drink and uh, then the racing stuff as well. So it, it was a different world back then, but it gave you a good base. And then I met you as Naira's director of television. Yeah, all right. I, I guess I, yeah, I was a director. <laughs> yeah, you do tend to forget more of them. It's, it's a 40 years is a long time. It's a long time. It sure is. But in a way, it's it seems or it sounds like you came back full circle. You, you got in because of announcing and, and now you're doing. Was it always your end goal to be a full-time announcer? I Yes and no. Um, I, I mean, I had thought about it. I had made decision made the decision because of, you know, family and stuff like that, that I didn't want to go out of town. I wanted to stay in New York. And I still had, and, and as, as we've talked about, you know, I had my hand in, in a lot of different things. But I was actually, even as, even as a backup, especially with Tom, I mean, I called a lot. I called a lot of full winters at Aqueduct. I mean, there was... It was just me. There was nobody else there. He was either in Florida or in Italy or whatever, you know, whatever he was doing. He called a lot of winters at Gulfstream. Uh, so he wasn't coming back to New York. So it was so that was a three month thing, at least maybe four months sometimes. So I got my fill of race calling. But again, I'm behind Tom Durkin. At that point, I'm not thinking that I'm becoming uh, becoming the top guy. And then Larry got the gig in uh, starting in 2015. And then, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to get it this year. And uh, I was just looking up different tidbits. And I came across that you sort of retired early in 2005. Yeah, there was some some things that, you know, I had to take care of. So, you know, uh, on a personal note. So, so I did that, but then was fortunate enough to come back. Charlie Haywood, who was the president at the time, um, you know, brought me back. And I did, um, behind, you know, production work at, at that point when he, you know, when he brought me back in the, in the TV department, which was also very good because, you know, I got to meet a lot of different people. Andy came on board in 2008, I think it was. So I've known him now. So he's been here 12 years himself already and then Maggie came on board and then you know other people as well and I'm meeting all the people the dozens of people that work behind the scenes you know in TV including yourself so you know all of that was a good experience I was in the in the production trailer you know for a bunch of years doing the simul handling simulcasting and uh, talking horses you know uh, you know things that you know about um, so again I really I'm not just saying this to say this. Everything that I was exposed to here w was really beneficial to me. And I really did enjoy whatever it I might have been doing at a particular time. And, you know, had my hand in race calling a little bit. Even when, you know, even when it was Tom and Larry, forget about the winter, you know, they would go away Derby week and Preakness week. So I would call those weeks at Belmont. They'd be gone by Breeders' Cup. So I would, I would start then. So uh, at the time, I really liked, you know, the mixed bag was good. I mean, it was able to do different things at different times of the year. And um, it, it's always been very rewarding and really a lot of fun. It, it really is. The, the, this is a great place, a great place to work. I've, been, uh, I've enjoyed most every minute of the 40 years. Well, still a fresh new journey in a way <laughs> yeah. this year has been. Uh, looking forward to the last couple of weeks of Saratoga, what are you, what are you excited about the most still? Oh, I think that I'm interested to see who runs in the two-year-old stakes, the spin away, the hopeful. We've seen some nice performances. Then you want to see if the horse can back it up. He, you know, they, they race so infrequently now. Most likely you're going to see um, the horse coming right off the maiden win, you know, going into those uh, into those stakes races. So, you know, so, th so, so that's always fun. But, you know, we've still got the Diana. We've still got the four-star day. We've still got the uh, the sprint race. What is it? The forego that we haven't yeah, run yet. So, so there's there's still a lot of still a lot of action. And we are doing this on Thursday and earlier today. Luis Saez won five races. You just never know what is going to come about on a, on a given day. I think that's the case more here at Saratoga than it is anywhere else. Saratoga truly doesn't disappoint, even though it's slightly different this year. Johnny, 
thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful. And no doubt I will get you on more often if you agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Naomi. I much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you again to John Imbriel, who's affectionately known by everyone at the New York Racing Association as Johnny I, a true New York-born and race announcer and someone I've had such a pleasure of knowing throughout my time with the Naira team. Let's move on to E5 Racing's Bob Edwards, who gives us candid insight in his operation and horses. Hi, Bob. Glad to have you with me on the show. How are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, so far, so good. It's been uh, another wonderful day at Saratoga. Thankfully, it's been an interesting day. I don't know if you've been following the races at all. You know, on and off. Um, not, not today wasn't, wasn't a big watching day for me, so I'm probably not the best judge. <laughs> I was just looking at, just back and forth on TVG, on the app, not, not on TV, not on Naira. Oh dear, that's not good. We'll just pretend <laughs> oh, I didn't hear that. <laughs> so I'd love to discuss um, your horses coming up this weekend. Super exciting. Valid point, draw number seven in the grade one, four-star Dave. Uh, you mentioned it before, grade one secretary, winner over Mal Arlington. Regular rider Javier Castellano takes the call again. How happy are you with the draw? Super happy. You know, we're in the we're in the seven hole right now, which for us in, in that horse in particular is great. He, he likes the outside, doesn't like being inside. We tried to save ground twice and he's really got a, an unbelievable kick if he's just kind of clear. And that's what we're hoping for. Will you think he might be more forwardly placed or drop back like it's more custom for him? And it's also the way he won the secretariat. Yeah, you know, and you know, I guess what we're hoping for is to have a race similar to secretariat. Okay. Well, I, is there any of the horses that you're most afraid of in, in this race? It's a, it's a strong renewal for sure. <laughs> Did you look at the card? Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, Raging Bull, you got, uh, you know, got somebody who won it last year. Uni, who's, you know, a great mile in her own right. Without pro, you, you just, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable race. But you're not afraid to put your horse in, are you? Well, you know, in order to be a you know horse, that everybody has to race against. You got to race against the best, right? And that's kind of the scenario here. We got to we got to beat these these great horses in this class to uh, to kind of get the respect that uh, we feel the horse deserves. Do you believe that that might also be a key to the success you've had so far? You're not afraid to place horses in in some of these top level races. Well, you know, we're not just arbitrarily placing horses in, right? So it's usually a team effort when we think about it. Um, the trainers aren't going to put a horse where they really don't belong, and you know. Everything's got to work right, as you know. Um, we got to get a great break. We get positioned well. Um, great horses overcome certain things, you know. So we're hoping that we have great horses here, and if something doesn't go to plan, they overcome it. Looking ahead at the Diana on Sunday, your leading lady rushing fall is coming off a brilliant win in the Grade One Jenny Wiley at Keeneland. So she's definitely one of the leading ladies in that race. Uh, looks like there's going to be a fair bit of speed there. She ran second. In this race last year, two sister Charlie, who's also reopposing, trying to make it a, a historic third Diana win. How excited are you about Rushing's Falls' bid to turn the tables on her? You know, we're we're excited every time Rushing Fall gets to the track. She's a phenomenal mare. She's been a you know just a special horse from two, three, four, and onward. Um, love having her race. She shows up you know every time. She's been the money all except for one race there at Keeneland, and you know I guess to. to be the queen, you have to beat the queen. I said this last year when we raced Sister Charlie. I mean, you know, she's a phenomenal mare. She's a great closer. You know, she seemed to do unbelievable at this track and especially that race two in a row. So, you know, we got to run our best to beat her. Absolutely. And how much has she meant to you and your family? Because that was also going to be one of my next questions, how much your family is involved in your racing operation? Uh, they're, they're involved in it a lot. So, you know, it's it's the, ta- it's the topic of discussion at the dinner table on a regular basis. Um you know, my kids are all involved at some level. Uh, my daughter Cassidy is up here for the meet. She's, she's usually at every track. You know, she travels to the meet. Um, and and it's, it was a big decision. You know, we ran in Keeneland, and she didn't run her best that day. She came in fourth in the um, the first lady. And, you know, it was disappointing. She she was kind of tired. It was a, was a long season for her. You know, she had an unbelievable just the game, almost set the record. She missed it by, you know, a few hundreds or tens of a second. And then she ran, you know, an unbelievable race in Diana to come up second. Um, and then, you know, just – she was kind of tired at then, and we don't we don't usually campaign. If you look at the race we run, we try to limit how many times we run her a year, and that's when she does her best. 
So, you know, now she's really matured. She's filled out. She went to the, the farm at Stone Street. Ina and Brandon, the crew, took really good care of her there. And, you know, she kind of really filled out and put on some some muscle and some weight and kind of rounded up a little bit. And she she looks like a different horse. And, you know, we saw that in the Jenny Wiley. She, you know, she ran her, I think, her career best figure. Um, she ran an unbelievable race, you know, broke a, broke a track record, whether that means something because we have an asterisk because of the timing and everything. But she ran an unbelievable race for us. We had two two career bests, actually. I think it was 103 buyer last time out in the Jenny White, and then in the Bogate, also 103. So she's been, you know, she's actually killing it. Is You mentioned how she filled out and she looked better as a physical. Was that also one of the reasons to keep her in training as a five-year-old? Well, I was committed at that point. When she went to the farm, you know, after her last raid at Keeneland there in October, um, you know, I, and I said I was going to run her, we were committed to running her. You know, we all felt that we still had some left in the tank that, you know, she needed a little time. She loves going to Stone Street in Ocala. They take great care of her and she just thrived there. You know, when she got back to Chad, you know, she had a lot of time to get back in the system. Obviously the, the COVID, you know, racing scenario kind of gave us a little more time than, than we wanted. Um, but, you know, she, she was just ready to go when she went in the bogey. You, I think it's a theme. It seems to be a prevalent theme that some of the, you know, mares are kept in training for longer and they seem to get better and better with age. Do you think that that's the case with her as well? I think so. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what we're seeing, right? Um, you know, she's, she seems to be running at her best level right now. And, you know, it depends who you talk to. I've talked to, you know, folks that have been racing for years and it's, I think this is the magical year for mares, right? So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, it continues and, you know, she keeps going forward. We just briefly discussed how you said your family is very much involved. Who, who does your family consist of and what are their roles? Now, I spoke with Tyler Gaffleone on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned that, you know, his partner is your daughter and also very, you know, very knowledgeable on the racing front. But I'd love to hear from you what everyone's role is. Sure. So my, my wife is, uh, um, you know, she's the, uh, the biggest fan, right, on the team here. She's, you know, she's very critical of every race, you know, every, very critical of every move we make. Um, she has a say in, you know, how we do the mares and, you know, kind of who we sell, who we don't. Um, and, and she absolutely loves the sport. She grew up in Saratoga. Um, so she's, you know, she's a Saratogian. She actually worked at the track as a kid. And this is, this is like a homecoming for her being here and able to race this level is, is, you know, really, really fun for her. Um, my, my daughter, Cassidy, obviously, you know, she's dating Tyler and, um, you know, she's a big part of the racing. She works for me on the pharma side and, and, you know, she does a lot of the racing stuff as well. And she gets to travel the circuit, which is, which is really nice and gets to see our mares and babies in Kentucky more often than I do. Um, my daughter Delaney is at the university of Miami and, you know, she, she, her and my son Riley, um, both are in Florida going to school and they come out for the big days. Um, and if we're in Gulfstream, you know, they, they go down to Gulfstream as well to see races, not as actively involved as my, my oldest Cassidy, just because they're in school and they don't have the time to travel. And then, uh, my wife's parents and, the, and her whole family up here in Saratoga, you know, love the sport. And just by default, you know, they're, they're a big part of our fan base. We have a, we have an E5 racing app that we created and we have, I don't know, about a hundred downloads from the store, you know, from, you know, folks that we went to college with friends, family, it's, it's pretty impressive. The uh, following we have. Yeah. And I was actually also reading your newsletter and that that's how I was reading up about, you know, your broodmare band and who's being covered by who, when they were covered and really, really great way of, of sort of spreading the news about your operation. And you have quite a sizable broodmare band. Was that something that you wanted to develop from the start when you got into racing? So that's kind of been the model, right? We started with, you know, babies. When we started buying babies, we started buying well-bred fillies. And, you know, because you can buy a lot more fillies than you can colts if they're well-bred, you know. And, and the upside for a, for a filly is, you know, you, you can run her a little longer. Um, you know, they're a little cheaper. And, you know, you get to breed them. Um, now, you don't get to breed them 170 times like we do the colts, but you get to breed them and then you get to see what happens after that. And, and that was the goal. So we, we, we started purchasing, you know, well-bred horses. Um, and then, you know, I spent a lot of time, you know, hundreds of hours kind of understanding um, breeding patterns and, and nicking and, and looking at, you know, historical breeds and seeing, you know, who did what and, you know, how horses turned out. Um, you know, I don't have a generic drug company, so I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm just copying what the uh, really successful breeders and farms are doing and, and kind of built our program that way. And, and then we started selling some horses, keeping some horses. This year will probably be my, my biggest year for racing this year, next year. Like we're bringing a lot of homebreds to the track right now to kind of really establish our mares if we can and try to place them in the right hands. Then we're selling some really nice horses as well. How, how many in total would you have in training at present? Uh, the standard answer I give is uh, more than I need and less than I want, unless you know, my wife and our accountants and our family are all listening. So you know, <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> it's a it's a hard target to keep track of, right? So I, I try to keep it that way purposely. But we have I think we have less than a hundred horses in total. That's the babies, the mares, you know, weanlings, yearlings, the, the whole nine yards. Oh, that's uh, still very sizable. And of course, when I was looking at your broodmare band, New Money Honey straight away stood out to me. Your Breeders' Cup Juvenile Felice Turf winner in 2016. And uh, who will she be visiting next year? I did see that she delivered a filly by Warfront this year. Yeah, the, we actually, the, the filly never actually stood nursed, unfortunately. And, you know, she had an emergency C-section. So we gave her the rest of the season off um, and, and everything is looking good. We're going to send her to the clinic, you know, um, for, she's got a little hernia from that and get her tightened up here in the next month or so. She's at Indian Creek and they, they take just great care of her. Um, it, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal facility. And, and she's, she's looked after every month to make sure, you know, everything's working properly and she's sound and she's happy and, you know, she's back to normal again. And we're looking to, you know, give her this year off and then, you know, in the spring we'll go back to Warfront. And she must be a filly that's very special for you guys. Cause you've only started racing in 2015 am i correct in saying yeah. that so what happened was i came up here with my wife and, and her family to meet her family for a, like a wedding and you know come up for a week or two during the summers and, and kind of go to the track a couple of times with lake george and, and stay at her folks house and a business partner of mine had a house here down in fifth Ave, about about 10 houses down from mine and uh, um he said come by the house bring Cassidy with you and i'll take you to the backside and never been to the backside ever um, went back and, you know, saw how they, they cared for the horses and saw all the horses and you could kind of go up and touch them and pet them and feed them. And it was just a really great experience. And we kind of spilled out into the auction after that. And, uh, you know, he sat me down with a gentleman named Nal Brennan, who introduced me to Mike Ryan. And Mike took my daughter and I around for the whole day. Didn't know who we were. You know, I'm dressed in a baseball hat and cargo shorts and a t-shirt and checkered sneakers. And, you know, he spent the entire day kind of showing us horses and explaining to us what he's looking at and looking and uh, I talked to him the next day and said, Mike, I'd love to buy a horse. You know, and we, we went over a kind of a short list of items and we looked at some some New York breads and, you know, looked for a, uh, a filly that fit the program that we were thinking of doing. And uh, I left. I had to go to the wedding. And uh, Mike texted me and said, hey, the horse is coming to the ring. And I had to dip out of the wedding and call him. We, we bought our first horse. And, uh, you know, we were, we were stoked about it. And at that point, my wife's like, we need to get a house in Saratoga. I'm like, we have one horse. Let's just relax and, you know, let's enjoy the one horse. We got back to Florida and said, wow. The stats of winning are really tough one horse. The stats of winning in Saratoga are even tougher. Um, we need to get a couple more horses. So I, I spent a lot of time looking at, you know, pedigrees and looking through the Keeneland catalog and, and using Mike Ryan as a great resource. And then we went to Keeneland. That's when we bought that first round of horses, which included New Money Honey. And, uh, you know, the rest is history with her. Yeah, what, what an incredible journey you guys have been on. Uh, dare say that especially the fact that you guys haven't been in racing for that long and have had such tremendous success uh, is the reason that you know a lot of people got to know about e5 racing in a, in a really great way and looking at some of the trainers you've had tremendous success with chad brown and i know you have horses with some other trainers too would you be able to explain how you pick your trainers and, and what factors contribute to that you know, so I've had, like you said, I've had great success with Chad. Um, you know, Chad's been a, a really good kind of a, a mentor in, in horse racing for us and kind of, you know, explaining things that may not fit in the um, the bloodstock arena, right? And uh, we give Chad, you know, horse that we think fit Chad. And typically Chad gets, you know, some of the best horses that I buy. Um, and then we kind of split the rest out between different trainers. Um, last, say, year or so, I started using Sappy Joseph in Florida. Um, and we, this year, we weren't really sure what was going to go on in, in Florida um, just because, you know, the, the COVID and, and was New York going to open. So they got a little more horses in Florida than I typically give. But, you know, Chad gets the bulk of my horses here in New York. Um, and then I have some in the Mid-Atlantic. I have two out in California, um, you know, coupling in Kentucky. And then kind of you try to pick and choose and keep everybody happy and to make sure that they're not running against each other in the silks. I still wanted to, before, you know, before wrapping up, so I have a couple of other questions, but didn't want to let you go before briefly mentioning Good Magic, who then uh, the next year also took the Sentient Jet Juvenile Breeders' Cup on his way to then get champion two-year-old Colt and then in 2018 won the Haskell. I mean, like we said before, the success you guys have had is just so tremendous, but that was in partnership with Stone Street. Um, how, how has that all come about, that relationship? Well, I, all my two-year-olds go to Stone Street and just kind of, that, that's how it, that's how it kind of sorted out, right? Um, you know, 
when we were buying horses, you know, Mike Ryan said, Hey, look, there's a farm in Ocala. Why don't you try them out? It's Stone Street. You know, they're, they're, they're taking horses in. And we just built a really good relationship with them. Um, great folks to, to own horses with, great folks to do business with. You know, just a, a great, you know, a, a great template for, a, you know, a, a farm. You know, it, it's unbelievable. And, it, you know, you mentioned good magic, you know, and our luck. Um, he broke his maiden in the Breeders' Cup. I mean, that's a great place to break <laughs> your maiden, isn't it? Yeah. And another thing is my first win, statistically, my first win was a stakes race. Um, Zendaya won the Intercontinental. Oh, my God. I didn't even realize that your your first win was in a stakes race. That's a, that's an incredible feat. I don't think that there's many owners who can uh, boast about that. I didn't know how to dress. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know what to do. You know, you know, we didn't we didn't go through the conditions to, you know, from wearing, you know, khakis to wearing a suit. So it was kind of a half combo. That's incredible. Of course, this year has been very different in terms of the ownership experience uh what are you guys currently doing are you able to still i guess in in saratoga now some of the owners are allowed to attend like a, only like a handful per horse have you been able to go or are you watching it all from home so we we came in we came to new york and we uh we quarantined for two weeks like we were supposed to and uh rode out the quarantine and then I've, i haven't actually had a race i had an mto um that didn't go off so i haven't been to the track yet i just got tested Finally, I was able to get tested. They, they missed my phone number up. I'm a 561 area code, and they kept doing the Long Island 516. Um, so I finally got tested today so I can hit the backside here next week, which I'm looking forward to doing. Absolutely. Well, I'm very glad to hear that you guys have at least been able to quarantine up here and, and will be able to see your horses train. Which are some of your younger, exciting horses coming up? Uh, do you have any horses to follow for the listeners? Ah, we always have horses. Um, gosh, let me think. I have um, I have a horse named Junkanoo that's a, a scat daddy that had a late start, late career. Um, he'll run long here. He's a really nice horse. Uh, we really like him. I have um, I have a horse, Unholy Alliance, that won here uh, about two weeks ago with Sappy Joseph. She's pretty exciting. She's a you know an older girl and she's a sprinter and she's she's a really nice closing sprinter. Um, I have a horse we're bringing up from Florida named Fuddled. Um, same thing, late start, invincible spirit, Marin, and, and, you know, she's, she could be something special to watch. And then, you know, we're peppered with babies. Um, we'll see how the babies go. I got a really nice Dubawi with Chad right now um, that, that looks like she'll run this year. I have a, a three-year-old with him that didn't run last year named Red Light Racer, um, and we look to hopefully see her here on the track. And then I have a horse named Sound Machine um, from, from Gulfstream that came up, and I'm not sure if we're going to run her here or we're going to run her in the Mid-Atlantic, kind of look for a spot for her. Does she's want to stake for me down to Florida? We'll just kind of have her fingers crossed and see how things work out. Oh, he definitely gave me a few horses there. I'll have to write them all down to make sure that everyone can remember these names. I know that Chad has a fair few nice Dubawis. Which, uh, which, what is what mare is your filly out of? Uh, so mine's Glory Sight, and uh, it's her name is Zoiks. Zoiks. <laughs> Definitely have to check out the spelling on that and very much looking forward to seeing these European breads. I always get very excited when all the European horses make their way back here, which obviously Chad Brown and has been doing great buying at the Tata Souls yearling sale uh, coming up soon again this year. Uh, any chance that you guys are going to try and get some European blood yourself or are you sticking around here? I do. I, I buy a fair bit every year. I buy some for Ascot and hopefully, you know, they get to that point, you know, there's one in a, one in a million shot. Um, and I haven't had much luck yet, uh, but I also buy a couple and, and try to kind of give them out to the guys here in the States. And, you know, depending on what the climate is with COVID, um, you know, I'd love to get out there, you know, and, and get more horses. It's, it's a it's a great time going to Tats. Enjoy it. The people there are wonderful. Um, you know, the town is, is great. It's a lot of fun. And it's a, it's a good couple of days going over there and uh, and just looking at horses, looking at where they do things differently, watching them in the gallop in the morning and uh, hanging out in the evenings. Well, I'm certain that Tattersalls would love to have you and look after you. And Newmarket is such a wonderful place. I mean, the home of horse racing in the UK. So a must visit for everyone that ever goes to Europe. And before we close up, because you're relatively new as an owner in the horse racing industry, I'd love to hear your take on before the pandemic and even a little bit during, there's been talks about, you know, how, how is the sports entertainment experience for owners and how do we view and treat owners? And do you believe that there is still a fair bit of improvement needed on that front? You know, yeah, I guess everybody expects more improvement at any front, right? So um, I, I personally have never been treated poorly. And, and this is this is a great, you know, it's a great sport. And it's, a, it's a very social sport. Um, and I think that's the biggest draw is, is you know, 
I'm, I'm actually, you know, I got guys sitting in my driveway right now. We're all going to dinner and it's owners and trainers and it's, it's a lot of fun. And we go, we have dinner, we have a great time. You know, I, I, I miss seeing everybody at the boxes here in Saratoga. I miss, you know, seeing people at Keeneland. I miss seeing people at Gulfstream. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, as far as how the tracks treat us, you know, I, I've never been treated poorly at the track. I think everywhere we've been, they've taken care of us. Um, you know, hospitality has been great and, you know, we don't, we don't use a ton of it. We're not, we're not really high maintenance folks. So, you know, we just kind of go and have a good time. And, you know, like I said, we bump into, you know, we bump into people from Keeneland or Fazig and, you know, they always look after us. We bump into uh, other owners and they always look after us. We bump into the farms in Kentucky and they always look after us. So it, it's a, it's a really great sport with really good people in it. So that's part of the draw. And that, I guess you make your own party. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And of course, I hope that the success may continue for E5 racing. So you and your family can continue to enjoy everything good that the sport has to offer. And I do think that that's my cue that your friends are waiting to take <laughs> you to dinner. So I hope you have a lovely dinner and uh, good luck. And thank you so much, Bob. Thanks. Have a great day. Enjoy your weekend. I am so thankful for my two guests who have shared their experience and thoughts with me today and made it so enjoyable for me to have a chat with them. Now, as you all might have realized, I have started to publish on Friday morning sometimes, so there might be a trend emerging here. And it's only due to the racing cards coming out on a Wednesday for the Saturday, which makes it tricky to look ahead, which is one of my favorite angles for this show. Thank you so much to everyone who continues to tune in. Next week will be the 20th consecutive show. Let me know what you think so far and stay with me for next week. See you racing aficionados at the track. <laughs>